0: Last week, Antoine Munoz started hearing rumors that the Trump administration was going to end the program to shield young immigrants like him, brought here illegally by their parents, from deportation.
1: I was getting ready for bed, and then I found out that this was happening. And I kind of was online for the next three or four hours researching. I didn't have any sleep that night.
0: This Tuesday, it became official.
2: The Department of Justice has advised the president and the Department of Homeland Security That the Department of Homeland Security should begin an orderly, lawful wind down, including the cancellation of the memo that authorized this program.
0: That program is DACA, of course, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Antoine Munoz is one of its recipients. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And we're going to get into DACA in a little bit, but we are starting with hurricanes, disasters, and their fury. After a disaster in the U.S., some of the first people on the ground work for FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. There are shelters and assistance, of course, but FEMA also contracts with companies to send inspectors into people's homes to figure out how bad the damage was. Jack Friday was one of them. Indeed, he got to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina when there was still water on many of the roads.
2: When I drove over into New Orleans and drove over that I-10 bridge, and looked to my left and looked down Bourbon Street, it was still full of water. And you just get kind of overwhelmed with what's there, and what's not there, it's how everybody is.
0: Friday worked as a FEMA inspector after several of the big storms at the beginning of the decade. We reached him at his home in Texas, and I asked him what happened when he'd arrive at a house.
2: Well, the first thing when you walk up to you drive your car or truck up to this house, you're scanning— the whole area, looking at the next door neighbors and you're just looking at everybody and, and just looking at the house in general. So, But when you drive up to the house, after being over there for about 30 minutes, every house looks the same. You drive down the streets, you got all the, all of the contents of the house is out on the street curb. If they had a tornado go through, they're all torn up, roofs, et cetera. If they just had wind and ra- raising, rising water, and they all look the same. So it's no difference from one house to the other once you get into the subdivision.
0: So when you would walk into a house, what are you looking for? What are you assessing?
2: Well, you walk in there with your camera and your notepad, and and you just do an overall general assessment of it. And then you you meet with the owners and get all the paperwork out of the way, and then you just start room by room, looking at detail by detail. You take pictures of every room, uh, all the damage it's done. I write up, you know, X number of feet of wet carpet, kitchen cabinets damaged, furniture's damaged. You you just write up everything that you see. Windows broken out, uh, ceiling caved in, sheetrock wet, just whatever you see.
0: What do people need to have when, when they know that you're coming?
2: Well, the most important thing they, they, ha- they have to have is they've got to have documentation that they own the property. And that becomes a challenge for some of them.
0: What did you do when people didn't have the paperwork if they, if they couldn't prove that they own the home? After all, a lot of people lose their paperwork in a storm.
2: Well, there's not much for me to do. I I actually ran into one family in Bro Bridge, Louisiana, where I was during Katrina, and in one home I went to, it was an older house, and there was a young couple in there, and the first thing I said was, you know, I need to see proof of your ownership of the house. Do you have a deed? And they said, no, sir, we just live here. And to make a long story short. The house belonged to their grandfather, who passed away, and then one of the family members just moved into it. And then they passed away, and another family moved into it, and nobody knows where the deed is. (laughs) So there was nothing I could do there.
0: You know, after a FEMA inspector does their work, then often the insurance company, if you've got insurance, the adjusters step in, they move on from there, kind of. How does the government and the insurance company work together at that
2: point? The insurance companies are going to send adjusters out. And so the FEMA adjusters are, they work for FEMA, but they are the insurance adjusters. Mm -hmm. And they come out and, and go to each house and meet with the family and actually look at the house item by item, measure rooms, This many square feet of carpet in this room. They got these windows broke out. They got this or that. They do. They document everything uh, meticulously, and then they send that all to their company, and the company then puts a dollar value to it.
0: You are out of this line of work right now, but you know there are people who are listening to this who who may have been affected or could be affected by a disaster in the future. Um, What would you? Tell them to do? What advice would you give them?
2: The first thing you want to do is pay attention to your adjuster. If you don't think the adjuster is doing what he should do or writing up everything and you're not happy with what his deal is, you can, of course, protest back to the company. But the best thing for you to do uh, is to hire a public adjuster. A public adjuster is somebody that's licensed to do adjusting. He works for you. He does not work for an insurance company. And they will charge hmm. you a percentage of what they get. But since they're on a commission, they're going to get everything they can. They're going to look at everything in there and and really do you a good job. So I would, I would recommend to anybody, if they're not satisfied with the adjuster that they got from the insurance company, look into hiring yourself a public adjuster.
0: Jack Friday. Thank you for talking with us.
2: Uh, Thank you for calling. I enjoyed it. Thank you much.
0: Getting ready for a storm like Harvey or Irma, or if you're in other parts of the country, earthquakes, tornadoes, there's a lot to do. A lot of people think of a disaster kit as something physical, food, water, important medications. But as we rely more and more on smartphones, smart homes, and the cloud, a digital emergency kit is pretty crucial. So to explain where to start, we've got Marketplace tech host Molly Wood. Hey, Molly. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. So what goes into your digital emergency kit, if you will? So my personal
3: philosophy is that before you even get to the digital, you have got to have the physical because in an emergency power, Is Everything. It is the only thing that matters. So Mm. you want to make sure that you've got external battery packs. You want to have some solar powered or hand crank chargers if they're available. And, you know, depending on the type of the emergency, remember that your car can be a giant mobile battery. And so... Make sure you keep charging cables in the car. And I highly recommend getting a a power inverter, which is uh, the doohickey that turns your regular cigarette lighter into, you know, a 110-volt wall charger. It's great if it's got two outlets and a couple USB ports. Once you have your power situation solved, you know, there are certainly things that you should make sure you've got checked off, like all of your emergency contacts programmed into your phone so that you can access them quickly if there's no internet access. That's your doctor, your family, your friends, your your daycare providers. And there are some really good apps out there that you can just store on your phone. Uh, first aid apps from the Red Cross or the American Heart Association. The FEMA app actually has a lot of local resources. And there's even uh, one called My Family from FEMA that lets you store your family's health insurance and prescription information so that you don't have to try to, to dig for it in some you know, box or, or file folder.
0: You know, my family, I remember, always kept things in a fireproof, you know, document-safe box. But obviously, we're living in a digital world. If you are someone, you know, who's got a smartphone, should you be taking pictures of your insurance policy, your passport, all of those things? And if you do, where is safe to store them?
3: Yeah, you definitely should do that. And it sounds a little scary, but you want photos of your passports, your Social Security cards, your homeowners' and renters' insurance, You definitely want to have photos of those things. And then storage does get a little scary. I recommend storing them on your phone somewhere. You can store those documents in the cloud. I do. But if you're going to do that on Dropbox or something like that, you need to make sure that your password situation is all the way legit. And I'm talking two-factor authentication, a password that is very, very difficult that you change often, There are also ways to encrypt those files and folders before you even upload them into the cloud, which is another option. It takes a little Googling, but it is very doable. But the other thing not to forget is that you can still do physical storage. There is a way to have digital copies of all of this stuff that you store on a hard drive. Just make sure that you've got a hard drive that's at your house and somewhere else. So I actually know people who will put documents like this on a thumb drive and then mail it to their parents' house in another state. Hmm. Uh, and I and that's an option that lets you digitally have backup copies. You have to make sure that they are not only stored in your house. That's sort of the most important thing. But there are ways to do that that don't necessarily put them online.
0: Are there digital ways to connect or reconnect with your loved ones in a disaster when you know all the normal routes aren't working? So one
3: thing to remember in a disaster is that a lot of times it's really difficult to make a phone call, but you can usually get a text out. So it is sometimes easier to just plan on texting in an emergency. There are also places where you might have Wi-Fi because the landline internet is still working. And so, you know, make sure that you've got a messaging app like WhatsApp or even Apple's iMessage on your phone so that you can, if if you're in a place with a shelter that has Wi-Fi but cell service is down, you can still do messaging that way. And you know, I have to say that things like the the Facebook safety check have actually proven really useful for people. And it's a great way to just sort of like check a box and let people know everybody at once that you're safe. Molly Wood, host of Marketplace Tech, thank you so much. My pleasure, Lizzie.
0: Now to DACA, and Antoine Munoz, who you met at the top of the show. We met up with him on the street in Brooklyn.
4: This is my uh,
1: United States employment authorization card. It's what you receive when you apply for the DACA program. It says uh, not valid for reentry, so if I ever were to leave, I couldn't come back.
0: Munoz's family is from Colombia, but he was born in Venezuela, and his mom brought him to the U.S. when he was one. He's 25 now. We talked with him around the corner from his day job at a coffee shop. But he's in the middle of trying to open up his own place, a speakeasy and Café. About 5% of all DACA recipients have started their own businesses, according to the Center for American Progress, a left-leaning think tank. You have a work permit. Mm-hmm. You're trying to open a business. Yeah. What do you do now?
1: I can't spend every little moment worrying about my status as it is now or how long I will have it because if I spend too much time worrying I won't get anything done. I, I realize I have at most two years to get everything running. Um, I guess I'll worry about that when I have to.
0: How do you make any business decisions that way?
1: I don't know. I just... I go with it right now. It's my business. It will always be mine. If I have to sell it, I can. If the worst comes to worst and I can't live here anymore, at least I will have some... some some money aside for wherever I have to go.
0: When did you come to the US?
1: I was one. I came in through a visa with my mom. She said she had a good life in Venezuela. But a lot of events were occurring, such as uh, the rise of Chavez. And she decided to sell everything she had there, get a visa, get everything ready, come here.
0: Do you remember how old you were when you found out that you weren't a U.S. citizen?
1: So I was uh, 17. And I was getting ready for university. I asked my mom, do you think you can pass me my social security card and anything else I need to apply for financial aid? And then she basically said, well, you don't have that.
0: Were you working before you had status? Um, My first
1: job, my first real job was at a restaurant about a block away from my house. And the management there was really nice. Um, They knew about my my status. They paid me under the table. You know, he said, listen, I know you can't get a proper job and I can't pay you more than this, but I want to teach you a few things. And he would teach me about business and, you know, how to run it and what numbers you need and, you know, that sort of stuff.
0: When did you first hear about the possibility to get DACA status and how'd you do it?
1: I was thinking, well, if I apply for this, you know, I'm on the radar. Yeah. Uh, And I said, well, Obama's president. I should be fine. I thought maybe in two years laws will change. And maybe everything will be okay.
0: What was it like getting
1: DACA status? i have been here for so long, and I grew up here. I didn't know I wasn't a citizen. And I saw all my friends going to school, getting their applications, their loans. Everything was falling in order for them, and I was kind of just left behind. And as soon as I got that, I was like, hey, I can start catching up. Tell me how your current job
0: helped you, actually, with this. Um... When
1: I came in, there wasn't many questions. But as I had to renew my uh, fee, I had a lot of bills to pay. My mom was in slight debt. I had to pay for her. And I, I didn't have enough money to pay my fee. Uh, and if you don't pay your fee and you let it expire, there's a chance that you can't get it back. And I asked my manager, hey, I need a few more hours or a few more days somewhere. Even if it's overtime, I know it's hard to do, but I need it. And he really pried into it. It's like, why do you need it? And I told him, I, I need it because I need to pay legal fees. And he really pried more into it. And I eventually had to tell him everything. And then that ended up, um, he told HR. HR reached uh, someone to our headquarters in the West Coast. And then someone in the West Coast reached out to our CEO. And then the CEO was in town about a week later or two weeks later. And he you know, personally spoke to me. I've been there for a while. I've, I've been there since the company started, like, really blowing up, and they just gave me the money. Wow. Yeah. He reached out to the whole company, and I just want to show you this. Yeah. He let, It's a huge email about just defending DACA and how are, uh, the company we work for, uh, Blue Bottle, uh, how...
0: Are Can we, you read this for us?
1: Yeah. He said... Uh, loving blue bottlers, I am devastated by the news yesterday that the current administration has decided to end the deferred action for a childhood arrival program, DACA. We are in this together, and we are never going to back away from our core values. Everyone is welcome here. We welcome everyone. With loving support, Brian.
0: How did it feel to get that email?
1: Ah, uh, it still so gets me. He's such... I know him personally, and he's such a great guy. And, uh, you know, I wrote back to him, like, thank you, Brian. You're literally the best. If we, if we could vote you in office, I would. And he wrote back to me, you are the best. And that was it.
0: What made you want to open your own business?
1: Um, so I've been with this company for a long time, uh, four years since I've had DACA. And I've seen them open different shops. I've seen them progress but ever since I was young, I always wanted my own business or my own... I wanted to have a comfortable life. I wanted to devote my time to other things I like. For example, when I was in high school, and I, when I thought I had a world of possibility ahead of me, I was actually shooting for a physics major. I wanted to get into that. I wanted My heroes were um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Michio Kaku, uh, you know, just all these physicists that just like made huge discoveries and, and that was my thing, I really wanted to be in science and you know, as I realized I couldn't go to school immediately or couldn't pay for my school debts or any of that I said you know the best thing I could do is make enough money to afford my own school and if it's too late for that then I could, down the line if I have enough money I can be the person that they come to for grants or to help support science
0: That was Antoine Munoz talking with us in Brooklyn earlier this week. (music) Numbers are everywhere, including in the news, so we like to use them to put some of the week's events in context. Producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez have got us covered with this week's news by the numbers. Sarah, it's all yours. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 900 million. That's how many dollars Fashion Week brings to New York City between its September and February events.
5: New York Fall Fashion Week started on Thursday, and it's economically significant for the city. Five percent of the workforce in New York is in the fashion sector.
0: It's not just fashion brands cashing in, either. Hotels, restaurants, florists, hairdressers, and car services are raking it in, too.
5: 41 million.
0: That's how many people between the ages of 18 and 24 Facebook told advertisers they can reach.
5: But according to census data, the actual number of people that age in the U.S. is only 31 million.
0: Facebook says the 10 million person gap is correct and that their measurements better estimate audience reach.
5: The company has made more than $36.3 billion in ad revenue already this year, by the way. cents. That's the price of organic avocados at some Whole Foods, down almost 30% from last month.
0: When Amazon purchased Whole Foods, competing with stores like Walmart and Kroger was a major goal.
5: And it's been said before that costs were a major barrier for potential Whole Foods shoppers. So will cheaper produce be enough to bring those people in?
0: I mean, who said fall couldn't be guacamole
5: season, right? I put a cinnamon stick in my guacamole.
0: A little tennis history is being made. I know, I do not mean Serena Williams' baby, though congratulations. But for the first time in 35 years... Four American women made it to the semifinals of the U.S. Open. Venus Williams, Coco Vanderway, Sloan Stevens, and Madison Keys. The quartet will earn a combined $7.37 million from the Grand Slam. So what does this all mean for women in the sport and the economics of tennis? Marketplace's Andy Euler has been digging into the numbers. Hi, Andy.
6: Hey, Lizzie. How are you?
0: All right. So four American women in the semis of a tennis Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. What is the impact on viewership and, I guess, Since we're putting this into money, advertising revenue.
6: Right. This is sort of a big deal. Um, This hasn't happened in the last 36 years. I actually wanted to get a little bit of context for uh, tennis back then because it was a huge deal. I I called Pam Shriver, a woman who played during that. I know, played during that time. She's now an ESPN commentator. She actually gave me a bit of context about sort of what we're seeing right now.
7: Back in the late. 70s and to mid-80s. It happened five or six times. I actually played in two of them at the Australian Open. Americans, we were the dominant country in men and women's, but here, it came a little bit more unexpected.
6: Not to brag about it, but I played in a couple of... No, it, it, <laughs> it was pretty pretty cool. Shriver actually called that the boom years of tennis. And she said the television numbers uh, were crazy, and they actually did reflect it. To this day, the highest number of viewers for a U.S. Open uh, was la- the last time it happened. Uh, in 1981, that year, 5.8 million people tuned in to watch. Last year, only about one and a half tuned in for the women's final. Now, Shriver says when the host country's players do well, it actually helps to gain public interest. But she says she's a little bit pessimistic. She's not convinced this is going to have a huge effect on how many people end up watching these matches. So that's going to, like you said, it's going to affect basically how much money these advertisers have to pay and how much money both the U.S. Tennis Association and ESPN can charge for those ads.
0: But we're also talking about an era now where people watch things on cable, whereas then it was like the big three sports, the big three networks, and that's it.
6: That's exactly right. Viewership, viewership numbers have been slumping for years. I remember as a little kid um, growing up in, in the, the early to mid-80s, my dad would have us all sit around and watch um, Connors and McEnroe. Um, yep. and, you know, that was a thing. Now, you're right. You can stream whatever you want. You can You can record a match and you can go back and watch it. It's just not the same sort of platform as it was. It's... It's one of those things that I think advertisers are dealing with. I think certainly ESPN is dealing with. They're trying to figure out how to get more people to watch. I think what's happening now, hopefully, what they're thinking is more kids are going to start playing. They're going to see these sort of young American athletes out there. They're going to grab tennis rackets. They're going to start playing. So it's going to be more of sort of a groundswell is what they're thinking, what they're hoping. Now, how that's going to translate into advertising dollars, I have no idea. I don't think they know either.
0: We talked about a combined earnings haul of more than $7 million for these four women. Uh, could this translate into sponsorship deals for these players and for more players?
6: The new American dominance on the women's side could certainly be an opportunity for for something like a uniquely American brand maybe to latch on to one of these rising stars. There, there's a funny little anecdote. Madison Keys, who is one of the American competitors that we're talking about in, in, in the finals, she already uh, tried to maximize her popularity. She put a temporary tattoo on her arm um to advertise a fitness therapy company wow um, <laughs> and the american tennis association the usda told her she couldn't do it but at least she's sort of thinking out of the box and saying look there's a lot of cameras out there there are a lot of people watching if i can make a little extra scratch by putting a temporary tattoo on there you know why not do it
0: one of the big debates when we're talking about money in tennis has been pay equity between mm-hmm. men and women um it's even down in Grand Slams. But what about kind of the rest of tennis?
6: Yeah, the U.S. Open actually instituted equal pay in 1973, which was a big deal. But it took other countries much longer to come around to the idea. And you, you also got to remember, you know, a lot of the tournaments that aren't Grand Slams, that aren't in New York or Paris or London or Melbourne, They're played in some developing countries. They're not, there's not really a governing body that's going to tell sponsors or whomever that they have to give out equal pay for both sides. But uh, Pam Shriver calls women's tennis and she thinks about it as an emerging market. She says if she were buying stock, that's where she'd invest.
7: When you think about in the next 10 to 20 years, what's going to grow more, men's sports or women's professional sports? Well, I think it's going to be women's professional sports because You think of the growth factor in the last 10, 20 years, and it's only going to continue.
6: It's such an interesting idea. It's it's the growth, and she's right. I mean, there's been massive amounts of folks sort of seeing – and just new women's sports emerging, and then advertisers, ESPN, picking up on the idea. I mean, why not put your money there? It's going to grow.
0: Well, so Venus and Serena Williams, for example, have brought a lot of young women of color into the sport – At the end of the day, though, tennis is tremendously expensive. I covered the U.S. Open Mm. in 2007 and talked to some of the young players about what they spent getting into the game. Is there anything else being done to kind of level the playing field?
6: No, you're right. You know know firsthand tennis is still a country club kind of sport. And, And the kids with the most resources normally have the better opportunities. You know, you have to travel to to get into tournaments. You have to travel to get your coaching. You have to have your parents have to have time. I mean, it's a whole investment, um, and then you're sort of latching on. To, you're hoping that somebody's going to pay for it. You're hoping that a tennis racket um, company is going to sponsor you. But when the Williams sisters hit the scene the idea that you could come from Compton and, and make it in tennis was was a completely foreign idea. I mean, th- how many narratives did we hear about, you know, this sort of thing happening and how, how interesting and, and and anomalous it was, and now yeah. it, it's, it's, it's kind of accepted. In fact, Madison Keyes, the, the young lady who we were talking about putting tattoos on her arm to advertise, she credits seeing the Williams sisters on TV as the reason she decided to pick up a racket. So these younger players who were still competing against Venus and Serena. I mean, they're still around. Say they owe them for their careers. It's incredible that that we've sort of made this journey. Um, they're still around, but but a lot of these younger players, they say, look, this is what we're hoping to bring to that next generation, even as we continue to grow in our careers. It's, it's, it's kind of a cool little, uh, you know, a, a circle of, of women's tennis.
0: Marketplace's Andy Euler. Thank you so much.
6: No problem. Thank you, Lizzie.
0: Now's the part of the show when you guys talk back to us, you know, nicely. After listening to our Harvey coverage last week, Michael Green reached out with a question. I wonder how many volunteers on the ground represent other countries, Michael asks, and how much foreign money has been sent to the U.S. to help with the recovery. Well, that's something we'll look into for you. We also turned over part of the show to our colleagues on the sustainability desk for an in-depth look at globalization. Listener Tom Olander appreciated it. Your episode on globalization was thorough, lucid, and genuinely enjoyable. It would be great to hear more in-depth subject explorations. All right, Tom, you got it. We have some coming on infrastructure, retirement, and the ways we work. All to come. You can contact us about anything you hear on the show. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at marketplace, W-K-N-D. And if you listen to the show on podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show. Or review us wherever you subscribe. There are some things you just can't escape during pregnancy. I know, not everyone gets swollen ankles. And yes, many women can still put their own shoes on right up to delivery day. But one thing you can't avoid? Lots and lots of doctor visits. And then, of course, there is the birth itself. But even so, it can be really hard to find out just how much a birth just regular old vaginal delivery, costs. The average in the U.S. is around $8,000, but the price tag varies depending on where you live. This is what Jenny Gold from Kaiser Health News found out in some recent reporting. We're going to hear from her in a moment, but we wanted to know how much some of you have paid to have a kid. Maureen McDonald from Chicago had her son in 2015. She had a C-section but wasn't too worried about the costs. Then the bill came. I was shocked a little bit because I
8: had good insurance and I wasn't really expecting to pay that much out of pocket for the birth.
0: Maureen had to pay about $7,000 out of pocket, which hurt. Kirsten Tucker had her son in 2014 in Atlanta. She and her husband wanted a water birth without medications. Their estimate beforehand was at $4,000, which seemed fine. But after insurance, they had to pay almost $7,000.
5: And when we did receive the bill, you know, I called the hospital and whoever it was in the billing department wasn't even able to explain what all the different charges
0: were. The original estimate was for self-pay patients, not people with insurance. And then there were all sorts of items on the bill that Kirsten didn't expect.
5: I also was really surprised by how much they charged just for the room. For the labor and delivery room, it was over $10,000 on their bill. For the recovery room, it was $4,000, and I thought, you know, what is this, Buckingham Palace?
0: And it's this point, not knowing the cost of delivery care, that can be really challenging. So let's get into our conversation with Kaiser Health News senior reporter Jenny Gold. And we started with this question, just where is the most expensive place in the country to have a baby?
8: The most expensive place is San Francisco, right where I I live, (laughs) and also Sacramento. It's Northern California in general.
0: What makes it so costly there?
8: Well, what I discovered is one reason why this area is so expensive is because it's super consolidated. So basically what that means is that hospitals have started merging in enormous numbers and buying up doctor practices. So we're left with a few big systems, one of which is called Sutter Health, mm-hmm. um, that own all of the healthcare um, in this area.
0: On the one hand, that seems like basic economics, right? If you have only a few providers, they can charge more. But it also seems strange to me when I read your story that prices seem to vary so much, even among and between hospital systems.
8: Absolutely. And that's a little hard to understand. You might look at it and say, well, the hospital systems with the uh, largest footprint might have the highest prices, and that's close to true. But actually, my research suggests that UCSF, which is an academic medical center, actually has uh, the highest rates. And I'm not totally sure why that is. Uh, one reason could be that they're making up for a large number of Medicaid births at that hospital by hmm. charging more to privately insured patients. Another that they claim is that they um, simply do more complex births. And um, a third reason could be um, that they are just charging more for the physician portion of the birth and less for the actual hospital charge. The problem basically is it's almost impossible to find out you know, why it is that they're so expensive and actually how much they charge in the first place.
0: Well, that's one of the things that fascinated me about your reporting is that it was not exactly easy to get the price tag for having a kid.
8: It wasn't at all. And I, as a journalist, had a really difficult time finding the prices. I did all kinds of things. First, I called all the experts I knew and all the researchers, and they said, well, we can't really get that data either. I tried getting it from some of the cost transparency tools like Castlight, which offer um, pricing information to patients. They wouldn't give it to me. They said they were also subject to the same gag clause. That's what the insurer said. That's what the hospital said. That's what the doctor said. I ended up having to ask friends, colleagues, people on social media, if they would provide me some of the information from their cost comparison tools. Um, they just this information just is not out there and available to researchers, to journalists, and maybe most importantly, to patients.
0: You are looking at Northern California, which is a pretty expensive place to live.
8: Do you have a sense of whether this
0: pattern holds true in other parts of the country?
8: It absolutely does. Consolidation is spreading across the country. Northern California, along with Pittsburgh and Massachusetts, Boston, are considered kind of poster children of what not to do. They mm. are the most consolidated. But we're seeing consolidation all over the place, and it's growing. Southern California, for example, is still a lot less consolidated than Northern California, which means there's you know more more hospital chains and more independent doctors. But it's definitely heading in the direction of consolidation.
0: What do you do if you're a patient? If you want to have a baby, how do you know what it's going to cost you?
8: So this is such a great question, and it's so hard. I mean, one thing you can do is call your insurance company directly and ask for the rates of various practitioners. Uh, Another thing that you ought to be able to do is go online or go into a cost estimator that's provided by your employer or or insurer and simply find out what various doctors in the area charge. But those things are really hard to find. They're often um, not provided to patients Um, and even when they are they can be really clunky hard to use and sometimes inaccurate so the truth is that's often really hard to do to find out what your bill is going to be when you have a baby and for patients who have a high deductible health plan they can end up being on the hook for a a large amount of the money
0: jenny gold is a senior correspondent for kaiser health news thank you very much you're welcome you can read more of jenny gold's reporting on birth costs just go to marketplace.org If you were to open up Instagram and search all the photos that were tagged at Pearl's Finest Teas in Los Angeles, you'd come across a ton of pictures of hands holding a drink that is royal blue on the top, bright yellow on the bottom, and sort of a mushy purple in the middle. Honestly, it reminds me of a tropical fish, and it's called the orange yuzu. Um, mix it, and then all the flavors will combine, and it'll pure magic in a cup. But this is gorgeous. So this is kind of blue at the top. This is the yuzu. Yep. The yellow. Yeah, and, and then this is hibiscus tea. It's all hibiscus tea and then because once the hibiscus tea hits the yuzu, it creates that like purpley effect in the middle. Wow. Hence the gradient hence, hence the, the gradient. Sunset.
8: Yeah.
4: Yeah, so that's definitely the drink that's taken Instagram by storm. And a lot of like press outlets have definitely come to try that and photograph it. As well as like Instagram and social media. Yeah.
0: That's Francis Miranda, one of the shop's owners. And the social media thing? That is not an accident. This place was designed to be Instagrammed. And not just the drinks. There are millennial pink walls with green banana leaf patterns, a red neon sign, mid-century marble tables. Miranda and his co-owner, Dennis Calvero, are part of a fascinating trend. Business is built explicitly, so customers will want to photograph, share, and, well, advertise for free.
9: I think that was primarily the main focus, you know, because having social media as the main source for marketing now, especially for food and beverage, you know, we we thought it was key to really have, you know, those elements of some kind of backdrop, some kind of neon, and then even a little counter spot where you can make it seem like you're at an actual cafe diner. We really wanted that counter
4: to be somewhere where you can sit down and interact with a barista, assuming it's not crazy busy in here, which it does get from time to time. And that would be the matcha latte espresso <laughs> with almond milk as wow. per your request. Yeah. Definitely one of the most Instagram drinks here as well, like near nearing to the orange yuzu, but... Uh, yeah, social media to us was a very big part of everything because yeah. you can see in real time what's going on in a space. You know, you can Google an image; it might be from six months ago. But with social media, if you geotag something, you could see it five minutes out. We were basically trying to drive traffic,
9: you yeah, know, and it's, have it. It's bringing it. more business. It's the new word of mouth, but visually, right? It's like someone posts something or uses one of our hashtags, and instantly people are like, "Oh, someone just." Went to Pearl's Finest Teas. I need to go over there and get me the orange yuzu. <laughs> it's basically like
4: free marketing. If you're not utilizing this tool, then I'm sorry, you shouldn't be doing business in this day and age. Yeah.
0: Do you know, in terms of bottom line, how much this has gotten you?
4: If I was to quantify it in like percentages, I would probably say like a good 30, 40%, like easily. Um, a lot of our business comes from just being on the street itself. There's a really crazy, popular streetwear store, which I would... Yeah, you, you guys know what it is. Supreme. <laughs> we
0: passed Supreme. Yeah. yeah,
4: yeah. So kids line up from... This would be Rosewood all the way to Melrose for releases. And that would happen from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for a Thursday release. They definitely send people over here. And we have Fairfax High School across the street as
9: well. So There's so many places here that people come already. And... Prior to opening, there were four coffee shops that opened there within were. the last two years on this block. And, you know, when the space came available, our other partner was like, we need, you know, a different type of drink to offer for the kids that come, the stand in line or the other guys that work in the other shops. So tea came to mind. And to the social media point, I think, you know, if we ever added something more to the menu... Or if there was, you know, any kind of event, you know, all we had to do is make a flyer and post it. And, you know, people are here. It's like
4: an instant press release for anything you want to do from new pastry items to ice cream sandwiches to a new drink. It's it's basically like, yeah, exactly. It's like one button out to the world.
0: Guys, thank you so much. Thank
4: you. No problem. Thank you.
0: Just a few weeks ago, many of us marveled at that total solar eclipse that swept across the U.S. And for space watchers, NASA's Cassini mission to Saturn comes to an end in a little over a week. But what if your office was 250 miles above the Earth? This week's Marketplace quiz comes courtesy of a man who spent some of his career... Out in space.
7: Hi, I'm Chris Hadfield. I was commander of the International Space Station astronaut for 21 years, but now uh, I write books and play music and do a bunch of different things on the side. Happy to be talking to you. So first question, in a next life, what would your career be? Oh, gosh, I think I've had five next lives. So what would my next career be? Uh, Archaeologist, I think. I've always been fascinated by archaeology. It was it was a real toss-up when I was going to college, whether I was going to go to engineering or archaeology. But there were very few archaeologist astronauts, so I, I chose engineering. What is the hardest part about your job that no one knows? The, the vast number of things that an astronaut has to remember that all constitute enormous consequence right up to life and death. And everybody takes you aside and says, okay, you just have to remember this one thing. And that, that happens thousands and thousands of times. So for an astronaut, it's the memory task. What is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? <laughs> um, bad whiskey. <laughs> is there such a thing? Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, <laughs> there's good whiskey and, and then there isn't. Yeah, the, yeah it, If you have to put a whole bunch of ice and water into it just to make it palatable, then, then that's that's a regret to me. When did you realize becoming an astronaut could be an actual pain career? I never really cared that it was a paying career, but I decided it was a career option for me on July 20th, 1969, when Neil and Buzz climbed down out of Eagle and walked around onto the surface of the moon. July 20th, 69, late at night. Do you remember the first time you were actually paid to go into space? Because that seems like, you know, a dream that only (laughs) most people have. (laughs) Uh, I got a phone call one Saturday afternoon from the space agency, in my case, the Canadian space agency, Uh, just after one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon in, in... early summer of 92 saying would you like to be an astronaut so that that was kind of i, I guess the start of an amazing time that that actually had an income of, affiliated with it too yeah a pretty a pretty incredible watershed day in my life is that how it works they just pick up the phone and then they call you and then you're like yeah sure why not i'm not busy that weekend so <laughs> there were, there was some prep leading up to it like my entire life but it all boiled down to that phone call being a yes or a no so yeah it was a pretty important day What is your most prized possession? My brother and I bought a uh, Yamaha FG-180 acoustic guitar together. We both worked on a farm and earned enough money. And while we were living out in the country, went into the big city and went to a guitar store and had no idea and tried to pretend we knew what we were doing. (laughs) Tried out a bunch of guitars and lucked in to buy a model that, in fact, Yamaha has re-released a lovely, Uh, big bass sounding acoustic i've had it my whole life i've taken it i've dropped it down a mountain (laughs) i've taken it all over the place and to me that is uh that's where i learned to play it it's the guitar i I go to whenever i get a chance that's that's probably my most prized possession what was your first job farmer uh i i grew up on a farm and when you're a kid you work and uh so every job that happens around a grain farm uh, with, uh, a cave, with horses a little bit on the side. So I guess farmhand was my first job. What is something everyone should own, no matter the cost? Hmm. A book that makes them think. Uh, and people think about different things, so it doesn't have to be the same book for everybody. But you ought to have a book that, when you're reading it, every paragraph or two, you stop and you go... Huh. and you want to go back and read it again, I think uh, that type of uh, expansion of your own mind is probably the most important possession. Last question. What advice do you wish someone gave you before you started your career? Take the time to keep notes about what you're thinking. It sounds trite, and, and I don't mean just a blog or a diary, but I just actually mean uh, just keep a book around with you and and just scribble in it mm-hmm. yeah. The transient thoughts. A lot of thoughts just come and go and you can't get them back again. Or your perspective on something shifts over time and it's nice to have uh, your own reflections. I've also flown about a hundred types of airplanes and I, I wish someone had said, take a picture of yourself in front of every airplane you ever flew. Somebody told me that about 50 airplanes in and I was like, you're right, I'm an idiot. I wish I'd done that.
0: That Marketplace Quiz was produced by Raghu Manavalan. And if you'd like to listen to Chris Hatfield again or any of our past chats with writers, musicians, sadly, no other astronauts, check them out at Marketplace.org. Coming soon on Marketplace Weekend, Alison Green from Ask a Manager is back answering your work-life questions. Last time, we tackled the thorny issue of children, human, and furry in the office. And yeah, bringing a sick kid to work is pretty much a no-no. You want to be careful about doing
8: that if they're contagious. I had a letter earlier this year from a reader whose coworker brought her sick kid to work because daycare wouldn't take him when he was ill and ended up spreading norovirus
0: throughout the whole office, including to someone who was being oh compromised. So people were not pleased. So you have been warned. This month, we are taking your questions on the best job search practices. What do you want to know? email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. You can leave us a message 1-800-648-5114. And while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter. You'll find details at marketplace.org. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen, Eliza Mills, and Sean McHenry. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Ben Talladeh is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao, Satara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.